Ephesians 5, I trust you're with, with me in uh, John 17. I think that's the first place we'll go this morning. But let me remind you of what we're talking about. Last week we began to talk about what it means in essence to be a Christian. In other words, if someone asked you to define what it means to follow Christ, you would answer them the same way the Apostle Paul answers them in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13, where he says, But now faith, hope, love, abide. And I told you last week, that's not the only place that the Apostle Paul uses that formula. He also uses it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and he uses it again in Colossians chapter 1. But today I want to talk about the second one. I want to talk about love. Because after Paul says, faith, hope, love, abide these three, he goes on to say, but the greatest of these is love. And so let me ask you, why would he say that? Why would Paul point to that one as the most important? Hopefully by the time that we get through the end of this morning, uh, you'll be able to answer that question confidently without me telling you the answer to that question. Uh, this morning is going to be long. I'll forewarn you, I just could not edit out everything that I wanted to edit out to get it to a short frame of time. And I do invite you, some of you do occasionally, but I do invite you to ask for my outline and I'll be glad to email it to you because I do want you to work through this on your own. If love is the most important, then you need to be satisfied within your heart that not only do you understand why, but you have taken that up as well. Now last week, again, we talked about faith. And keep in mind, we're talking about these three abiding. So not only was I trying to communicate that initial faith, but I was also trying to communicate a life in which faith abides. It is that initial faith that causes you to turn around in the road. It's an absolute U-turn, and you stop from going your way, and you turn and walk in the way of the Lord. That is that initial faith. But then you begin to take up faith as a way of life. You begin to walk as a measure of the whole of your life in the way of the Lord. And when you're a young believer, you're immature in the faith and you're constantly becoming distracted. You're constantly taking detours away from the way of the Lord and you find yourself somewhere out in left field and by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, He causes you to once again turn around in the road, leave behind your way, and pick back up upon His way and continue following Christ. But as you mature, you will begin to find your way swallowed up by His way, and the only way that you want to walk is in His way. And you're not so easily distracted and detoured in the way of life. Now, love's the same way. There is an initial love, and there is an abiding love, but the difference is the initial love is not your love. That first love is His love. In fact, you remember the only reason we love Him is because He, what? First loved us. In other words, it is His love that makes the move toward us, and then when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is the very love of God that is poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit. In fact, I mentioned that last week in, in Romans 5 and in verse 5. And I told you it was in the perfect tense. 
The moment that we experienced His love, that initial love, was the very moment that God poured forth His love by filling us with the Spirit and sealing us with the Spirit. And so we know love. Yes, we're immature, but we begin to grow and know the love of God. I talked to a brother last night late when he talked about the presence, the sweet presence of God. And it ought to be our greatest appetite. It ought to be the thing that we pursue to the very ends of the earth every single day. That sweet fellowship, that sweet communion, that sweet presence of God where we know His love even more. And we have many opportunities of grace that God has given us. One of them being the very most important, the table. Where we can know more of the love of God. The Word of God. As we study the Word of God, we begin to grow in the love of God and we know more of the love of God. Prayer. Where we set aside all of our distractions and we begin to seek the face of the Lord and call out to Him in prayer. And through those experiences, we know more of the love of God, right? So it's not just that initial love, it's that abiding love. And then we come to the place where we're nothing more than a conduit. We know that we're filled with the love of God, but the love of God begins to flow through us and out to everyone around us. And that's that abiding love that Paul wants us to remain in, to walk in, to show. Now, again, I'm hoping that I can communicate to you everything the Lord has done in my heart this week as I've pondered over these things. But, you know, we refer to the Bible as the progressive revelation of God from beginning to end. And surely you can see that, I mean, from the very first verse, right? We understand Him and first know Him as our Creator. It is God who created the heavens and the earth. And then you read the very last chapter of the Bible and you find yourself standing before the Creator of the heavens and the earth. And all throughout the Bible, we know Him more and more and more in an increasing way. But because it's progressive revelation of the person of God, it is also progressive revelation of the character of God. Let me give you an example. You begin to understand Him as holy with the law, right? The holiness of God was communicated through the law. But when you stand at the foot of Calvary, oh, you know holiness in a much greater way. This God is serious about His holiness. And in order to make His people holy, He gives His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. This God is holy and He is deeply concerned about His holiness. And we have a growing understanding of that. And one day we'll stand in His presence and with the angels sing what? Holy, holy, holy. And we'll know it even more. You see, this is how God works. But it's not just the characteristic of holiness. It is equally the characteristic of love. Now, we sing about it in the song, right? The law is love. The law was an expression of the love of God. And you begin to see this love form as He's so faithful with His people as He walks with them, right? From the Exodus to the Promised Land. And He demonstrates His love. But where have we known love the most? 
Again, you stand at the foot of Calvary and you love like you've never known before. You say to yourself, I had no idea that God would love His own the way in which He has loved Him as our Savior dies on that tree. But again, I would suggest to you when we stand in glory forever, we're going to know love so much more deeply than we do now. In fact, that would be a good word to define eternity. Just enjoying the love of God in ways that grow in their size and intensity. The love of God like we've never known it before. God progressively reveals these things to us and we know them more preciously and more deeply as we go. Now, we talk a lot about love around here and hopefully you could answer some pretty difficult questions if I were to ask you. But you also need to realize that we're not the only ones talking about love. The world's talking about love. They're doing it right now. And this is what they say, if you love me, you will affirm me. If you don't affirm me, you hate me. That's the world's description of love right now. I love what Alistair Begg said in response to that. In fact, he said it just a few weeks ago. I cannot affirm you because of what the Bible says. But I cannot hate you because of what the Bible says. I must love you because of what the Bible says. You see, we can't affirm sin. We can't say that that's okay with all the sexual immoralities that they participate in. We cannot affirm that if we want to be faithful to the Lord. And at the same time, we cannot hate them if we want to be faithful to the Lord. You see, in order to understand God, in order to understand what genuine love is, you have to start with God. Remember what John says in 1 John 4, 7. God is what? Love. So in order to begin to understand what love even means and what genuine love looks like, you have to be in a relationship with God and that only comes to you through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot know love apart from Christ. And you say, well, surely you don't mean that. I mean, lost world knows what love is, don't they? They know the love between a parent and a child. They know shadows of it. They know flashes of it. They don't know it in its depth and they cannot define it because they don't have a relationship with God who is love. I tell you this often, not only is He the essence of love, but the fullness of love can only be found in God. You do realize if God does not exist, love does not exist because God is love. If you take God away, all you're left with is emotion. All you're left is, is response. In other words, somebody has to appear loving for you to feel loving. And God's not that way. Love defines who He is. It's not a response to anything. It's the definition of who He is. 
And we shy away from that as Reformed people. But when you think about John 3.16, what was offered as an expression of God's love is absolutely immeasurable and unthinkable. You cannot plumb the depths and you cannot measure the heights of the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's never a time when God is not expressing His love. Even in His wrath. You think about that? Let me let this float around in your mind for a little while. The wrath of God is an expression of the love of God. They're not opposites. Let me give you an example. Calvary. Where the unmitigated wrath of God opened up the unmitigated love, to, love of God to others. The wrath simply opened the door for us to experience the love in all of its fullness. There is no moment where God has acted in an unloving way. Everything God does is in the sphere of love. But I also want to give you another thought. When we say that God is love, you need to understand that we are expressing the attributes of the Godhead. Because we worship the triune God, right? God is one, but the Bible reveals that three divine persons exist and share in the exact same nature and essence as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's the Trinity. But they share everything perfectly. So when we sing, holy, 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 you're singing about the Father, you're singing about the Son, and you're singing about the Spirit of God. They share exactly the same essence and character. And it's because they exist in absolute perfect unity. Steve describes this as the three-in-oneness. I don't know of a better description. They are so perfectly one that when we talk about their attributes, we have to remember that they share those equally, perfectly, whether we're talking about holiness or whether we're talking about love or whether we're talking about any other attributes. And what's precious to me is that you can see love expressed between the Father and the Son even before time begins. You're in John 17. Notice with me verse 24. And I'll show you what I'm talking about. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me when? before the foundation of the world. You see, not only did they share that characteristic or that attribute, they shared that love with one another. The Father sharing the love with the Son, the Son sharing the love with the Father, the Father sharing the love with the Son and the Spirit, the Spirit sharing the love likewise. Not only did they exist in perfect unity, they existed in perfect love, and it was a shared love. And there are many places that we can walk through the Gospel of John. Turn over with me to John 15 and look at verse 9. That one's close. Notice what the Son says of the Father in verse 9. 
Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Now abide in my love. What a wonderful relationship that I don't think we give very, very much thought to about this perfect love that existed within our triune Godhead. If you're taking notes, jot down John 5, 20. I'll read it to you. It says there, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all things. And then in John 3, 35, it says, The Father loves the Son and has given Him all things. I think there's about five places in the Gospel of John. John was enamored with it. John understood that the Father loved the Son. And I know that's a little bit beyond our ability to think about and comprehend, but God is love, and He expressed that love within Himself, within the triune Godhead. But when you get to the love that the Son has for the Father, it's seen so much more than it's ever said. And this should teach us something about love as well. Turn to John 14. I want to begin reading in verse 27, and you'll see what I'm talking about. The Father expresses His love toward the Son, but the Son demonstrates His love toward the Father. John 14, notice verse 27. Jesus writes, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Now I have told you before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. Notice verse 31. But so that the world may know that what? I love the Father. I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. In other words, rather than saying it, Jesus said, watch me. And I will do in such a way as the entire world will know that the Son loves the Father. Now, what's the context of John chapter 14? What's the one thing that he's about to do? He's about to give his life as a sacrifice for sins. And Jesus said, this is going to be my greatest expression of my love to the Father as I lay down my life on behalf of his people. <clears throat> and so now we can go through a number of texts now that we understand the context and we understand every time Jesus walked in the will of God, He expressed love for the Father. Now let me ask you, when was it that the Son walked in the will of the Father? Better question. When was it that the Son did not walk in the will of the Father? That time never happened. So when was it that Jesus expressed His love for the Father? With every breath that he took, with every thought that he had, with every word that rolled out of his mouth, with every action of his life, he was expressing love to the Father. We often go to Hebrews 10. You know what it says. 
He writes, therefore, when he comes into the world, the Lord Jesus, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin. You've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do what? Your will, O God. Let me remind you of Jesus' prayer in Matthew 26. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as what? You will. His entire life was an expression of love for the Father. So we have this beautiful picture of what love is even within the Trinity. And the Father is constantly verbally expressing His love for His Son, right? This is my Son with whom I am well pleased, the Father says of the Son as He is baptized. And constantly John is recording those words for us. So we'll see that God is love and within the triune Godhead, there's this constant expression of love. And then the Son comes forth and He says, I will demonstrate it for you. I will show you what love looks like to the Father. So when we go through this progressive revelation, let's first start with the Trinity, but then let's move to the Word of God itself. Now, I did not tell you to, to turn here, but just real quick, it's not hard to find. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I want you to turn there and I want you to see the expression of love within the law. Notice verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Do you realize this is the centerpiece of the Jewish faith? This is the great Shema, and they do that very same thing. Every morning and every evening they recite these words. When they gather for worship, they recite these words. And when they go to bed at night to be faithful to the text, they recite these words. These words mean everything to them. And when the Lord Jesus came, He put even more emphasis on these words than we realize. Because there are three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that record these words, and then they record a response or a commentary, if you will, of the Lord Jesus Christ about these words. In Mark 12, and again, I don't want you to turn there, I just want you to listen. Mark 12, verse 28, one of the scribes came up and asked Jesus this question, what commandment is the foremost of all? Out of the law of God, Jesus, who is God, 
What's the most important one? Jesus recites the Shema, and then he responds with this commentary. There is no other commandment greater than these. When you turn to Matthew's Gospel, it's the very same instance, but Matthew records a different response. Again, a lawyer asks him, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And he responds, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he says, This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus responds with these words, On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus said, if you get these two right, you've kept the entirety of the law. But I like what Luke writes. Luke gives us another example when Jesus was asked a slightly different question, but yet he responds with a Shema. Luke 10, verse 25, a lawyer stood up, put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer responded perfectly by reciting the Shema. And then Jesus responds with these words, you've answered correctly, do this and you'll live. In other words, love fulfills the law. And it should also fascinate us that I did my math right. The Jewish people have been reciting the Shema for 3,400 years, a little over, and they've yet to realize that they can't do it. They've yet to realize that they cannot love the Lord their God with all their heart and soul and might, and they cannot love their neighbor as their self. And they've yet to realize that God has sent someone to do that on their behalf and to do it absolutely perfectly. So let's move from the Trinity to the law and let's move into the gospel. Because where we stand today, the gospel is the greatest revelation of the love of God. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And there's a couple of different ways that I want to mention in regard to this love that is immeasurable, again, that we cannot even begin to fathom, but that we rest in and that we trust in. And the first demonstration of this great love of God for us, for really the created order, because the word is the cosmos, God demonstrated his great love toward the created order by giving His Son, first and foremost, as a sacrifice for our sins. I mentioned this last week in Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I told you, without the context, you don't understand the love. Because herein separates the love of man and the love of God like no other place in the Scriptures because of the context. Because God demonstrated His love not as a response to who we were. God demonstrates His love because of who He is. So as we yelled, crucify, crucify, God says, love. 
and God responds with love. And that's why that is the greatest demonstration or revelation of the love of God that we've ever known. We would not expect it in that context. We would expect, and rightly so, the wrath of God to be poured out on humanity in that instance. How dare we nail up the perfect, holy Lamb of God That would have been a just and fitting place for the end of creation. But that was the very moment of creation. That it was reconciled. That was the moment that it was redeemed. That was the moment that we were saved. The worst moment in the history of time became the best moment in the history of time. And it was all accomplished by the love of God as we stood there and watched His love spill out of the ground. As we watched His blood flow down, we saw love like we've never seen it before. And so in reality, it really should anger us when we hear the world talk about their love. Because we should scream at them, you know nothing of love. Love died on a tree for you. And if you would but repent and believe even now, you would be filled with that love and know that love forevermore. You see how desperately... You need context to understand the depth of God's love. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. God did that. But there's two things here because there's part of this passage that remains, right? Not only did He provide a sacrifice for our sins, but He also accomplished righteousness on our behalf. So let me read this again. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the very righteousness of God. So God not only demonstrates his love for us by providing a sacrifice, God demonstrates his love for us by imputing to us the very righteousness of God. Turn to John chapter 14 again, and I want you to notice verse 31. In fact, there's two places that come to mind that I want you to see. John chapter, verse, uh, John chapter 14, verse 31. Again, but so that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. And then he walked out to be crucified. But I also want to show you John chapter 15, if you'll turn forward. And look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Do you see the Shema in those two passages? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Did Jesus do that? Well, I do exactly as the Father has commanded me. And I do it so the world will know that I love the Father. 
So did Jesus love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength without question? Now let me ask you, did he love his neighbor as himself? Well, what does John 15, 13 say? Greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And so when we look at the law of God and let all that run back through our minds when Jesus said, this is the greatest commandment. Doing this, you will live. And then we watch the Son of God come and do the very law before us perfectly as He loves God fully that He would obey the Father all the way unto death, even death on a cross. And His death He would do in our place. And the Bible would describe it as there is no greater love than one might lay down his life for his friends. Turns out, God was right all along. The law is love. And to fulfill the law is to love perfectly. But we know ourselves that we can never do those things. We cannot love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, or strength. We cannot love our neighbor as ourselves. But God sent one who would do that in our place. So let me take you back to Calvary. God demonstrated His love for us not only by paying for our sins, but God demonstrated His love for us by fulfilling the law in our place. And so this morning, if you get to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and no, I'm not done, but it seems like a great time to say this right now. If you will turn your hearts away from your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is nothing for you but everlasting love. That will be all you will ever know for the rest of your days. Days without end. You will know His love. You will be filled with His love. And you will be empowered to walk in that love for the rest of your days. Turns out, God is all about love. Now, let's keep moving forward. We've got one other place to go. We've gone from the Trinity to the law to the Gospel. And let me, let me go to you. Because now that we've been saved by love, remember these three abide. Faith, hope, and love. How is it that we can abide in love? And I had to reduce this down, I guess, so let me give you three ways in which we abide in love. The first is, hear the law. Jesus would say on the night before He was crucified to His disciples, a new commandment. I'm going to give you a new one. This is what He says. Love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And you're like, wait a minute. That's not new. That's exactly right. It's what John says in 1 John. It's not new at all. It's the same that it's always been. And so if we want to abide in love, the first thing we'll do is turn and hear and heed the law of God. In fact, Paul said in Romans 13, 10, Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So we're not required to fulfill the law in order to be saved, but because we are saved, we now love the law. 
Because we love God and we know that when we walk in the law, we are walking in love. That's the first way that we abide. The second one is we abide by looking at the very example of Christ. I had you turn to Ephesians, so go there with me very quickly to Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read this slow because I really want you to see it. This is simple math, y'all. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and what? What does it say? Walk in love. Oh, I got an example for you. Just as who? Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us. It's not hard. We've been called to abide in these things. And so we're commanded by God to imitate God. You see, that's one thing that God is doing through the Gospel is remaking the image in which we were created. And when that image is perfected, we will be perfected in love. But we're not there yet. But that's okay because we've still been called to it. And so the, the duty of today is to walk in love. But it's not just a command. He says, remember how Christ did these things on your behalf? It's really quite simple. I want you to follow in His way. And as you walk in His way, you will be walking in love. Now, I just got to pause and remark at the simplicity as well as the wisdom of the Apostle Paul to reduce Christianity down to three words that remain in our life. Faith, hope, and love. So we follow the example of Christ. And just very briefly, just for the sake of time, we look at Christ when He expressed love for the Father. And so let me ask you, how did Jesus express love for the Father? I would imagine, you know, after this night, they went out and, and sang the great Hallel, the psalm. And we don't know for sure, but I would... I would think that the Lord Jesus Christ verbally expressed His love for the Father as He sang. I would also be absolutely convinced that when Jesus withdrew to a quiet place by Himself in the morning to pray, that He in those moments expressed His love to the Father. But again, we don't have that written down. But I might even argue that he would do such a thing because certainly we do express our love for God through prayer and we do express our love for God through song. But that's not the principal way that the Lord Jesus expressed his love for the Father, is it? In fact, you're going to be hard pressed to find Jesus say the words. Oh, we're all about words, right? Can you, do you, can you know of anybody in your life that you could ask, do you love God? And they would go, no. I mean, I, I can't think of anybody. I even have a lost friend who won't go that far. 
who would say, no, I love God. But we have to remember the example of Christ and realize the way that He expressed love to the Father is by His obedience to the Word. And then Jesus says this in John 15, 10, and if you take notes, you do desperately need to write this one down. Jesus says this, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Again, we have the example. He's like, yeah, I abided in the love of the Father because I always kept His word. And Jesus says, you need to do the same. You need to abide in the love of the Father by keeping His Word. When we look at the example of Christ, did He love others? Well, yes, that's ridiculous. Calvary. Then how do we love others? You'll never be able to love anyone, and that's not until you love yourself. You'll never be able to love anyone until you stop considering yourself. Isn't it amazing how the world has turned that around and that false teaching has been brought into the church? It has nothing to do with loving yourself. You've never struggled with that. You won't love others until you stop considering yourself. We have to follow the example of Christ. So I told you three, hear the law, follow the example of Christ, and thirdly and lastly, Humble yourself to the Holy Spirit. I, I told you, the, the Spirit's job is to make you like Jesus. That's what He's doing. The charismatic church wants to make Him do everything and anything else, but the one thing that He is doing for sure is He is making you like Christ in every way and shape and form. So let me ask you a question. What is the fruit of the Spirit? What's the first word? For the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. It's everywhere you turn in the text. I'm sorry if I've ever complicated the Word of God. It's so simple that these children, that their eyeballs are peeled on me right now as I look around the room, they get it. And the only reason we don't it's because we want love. We want to protect ourselves. We want to defend ourselves. For goodness sake, we can't let anyone take advantage of us. And besides that, I kind of love my way. And I love his way. So some days I'm really not sure which way. No, it, 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 it's all on you. And through repentance and faith and understanding this simple truth, we can do what Paul says. We can abide in love. Now, I'd be absolutely aggravated with myself if I didn't show you just how simple it is. So Ephesians 5, I trust you're still there. Let me show you where the application begins. Ephesians 5, verse 25, men. Paul carries us the whole way. Ephesians 5, verse 25. Husbands. What? What does it say? Love your 
wives. Oh, you thought it was complicated, right? You thought there was some grand thing you were going to do. You thought you were going to go busting through those doors and just go running out there and just love God to the fullest extent, right? Oh, no. Go home. Sit down on the couch. And you can say the words, and you should. But remember the example of Christ. He didn't say it nearly as much as he did it. You know, I love when Jody comes. Y'all remember what he said? Men love today to talk about their ministries and their missions and all these things that they've got going on. Jody says, man, I'm just trying to love my wife. How long has he been on the mission field, Melissa? Over 20 years. And he's as honest with us as he possibly can be. And he gave his testimony the last time he was here. I'm just trying to love my wife. You're like, dude, you've been on missions in Mexico for 20-something years, planting hundreds of churches. One, no, men, no telling how many people to the faith, Jody and Chico. And he's reduced Christianity down to, I'm just trying to love my wife. Do you understand that fulfills the Word of God? Do you understand when you're loving your wife, you are loving God? Because God has told you to do that very thing? So it starts at home, but it doesn't stop at home. It goes on to the church. Again, look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the what? The church. And again, it's not so much expressed in our words as it is expressed in our actions. And so we saw in Romans 12 where Paul says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. This needs to define who you are. This is what it means to abide in love. You love your wife or you love your spouse and you love God's church with a white hot passion. And then lastly, we've got one more to love. And it's the most difficult one. I didn't tell you to turn there, but go with me to Luke chapter 6, and you'll see this one take shape. Last verse. I'll ask you the question, and we'll pray. But you already know the question. I'm just going to remind you of that. Luke chapter 6, verse 27. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, that implies a willingness. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer to him the other also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you. Whoever takes away from what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. And then he asks these questions. If you love those who love you, 
What credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. Not only are we called to love at home, not only are we called to love at church, but we are also called to love the people in a world who reject us, despise us, and hate us. And you're like, why would you love them? And you go, oh, they're my favorite group. And you're like, why would they be your favorite group to love? Because when I love that group, I have context. You see, it's easy for me to love her. And I say that without any sort of waver in my voice. She is the easiest person in my life to love. And I love y'all. I tell people all the time, this church is special. I love and pray, Paige and I do, every morning for all of you. And we don't do it as a big group. We do it in family. The next day, another family. The next day, another family. But you guys are easy to love. I need context to demonstrate the love of Christ. I need people who are unlovable. I need people who are difficult. I even need people who don't like me, don't agree with me, don't want to be around me, and go so far as to hate me. Because if I've got somebody like that, then I can show you genuine love. I can demonstrate the love of God. So let me ask you. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Why would he say that? Let's pray.